When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Welcome to the Space Boffins Summer Outing to the Blue Dot Music Festival at the famous Jodrell Bank Observatory in Cheshire, which, if you live outside the UK, is near Manchester in northern England. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham, and this is Sue Nelson. Hello, and uh, what shall I say about this place? Well, let's think of it as a uh, Glastonbury for geeks. It's a combination of music, space, it's got concerts, lectures, hands-on science, and uh, we are actually beneath the giant Lovell radio telescope, which is, I think, probably one of the best views we've ever had recording a podcast. It is phenomenal. It's true 1950s battleship engineering. In fact, the motors that operated, that's turned this enormous dish and all these girders above us are actually from the gun turrets of World War II battleships. Coming up on the podcast, the universe interpreted by CERN's cosmic piano. Matt Taylor on the end of Rosetta. We meet the band that bounced a guitar riff off the moon and Sue asks Tim Peake about his body. (laughs) It was a (laughs) one-on-one. Well, I caught up. <laughs> yeah, I'm only joking. Uh, well, I caught anyway. A fan, uh, now my, that's all I can think of. Now I've got to get my mind off this. I caught a fantastic music and space science combo in the Close Encounters tent. Now, scientists who work at CERN presented a cosmic piano in order to jam with the universe. It's an electronic instrument and it responds to incoming signals from space. This thing here is data coming from the sun and has been turned into a melody. Domenico Vicinanza from Anglia Ruskin University, Cambridge. First of all, could you explain what sonification actually is? Sonification is all about turning data, information, numbers into into music, into something we can hear with our with our ears. We can we can listen to, we can understand and explore using our ears instead of using our eyes. I caught the beautiful piece of music that was using some sort of science from the Large Hadron Collider. Could you explain? what you'd actually done. It's a translation in music terms of something that happened in 2012 at CERN. What we did was translating, was mapping, 
numbers to uh, to music notes. The larger the number, the higher is the pitch of the music notes. And growing number means growing melody. Decreasing number means decreasing melody. It was melodic, even though when you showed the music, it didn't look like it would make such a, a sort of rhythmic sound, apart from the little beats of the Higgs boson. So what were we hearing? What had you transposed? Uh, that was the, en- the energy spectrum. The reason why it sounded nice and sounded really quite interesting is because, first of all, because of the, of the music scale we've chosen, but also because the actual nature of the graph is, not, is coming from something real, something highly structured, which is, you know, is, is a result of a physical experiment. And so nature is structured and nature is beautiful. And if we find the right mapping to actually harness that beauty and, and convert that beauty into something we can listen to, we have interesting and beautiful music as well. The CERN scientists then decided to make an arrangement of the particles and the Higgs boson signal. We then had a jam session with pianist Al Blatter and someone wearing a movement sensor. Genevieve Williams from Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. The sensor on the arm was monitoring the position of my arm and the acceleration of my arm. So as I moved, we were transposing that position and acceleration directly to music notes, which enabled me to follow the shape of the graph and how steep or flat the curve was and sonify that data in real time using movement. So instead of using direct mapping onto a musical instrument, I was able to use my movements to map that data into music. And then there was this device that had lots of different coloured light bulbs. That wasn't so melodic, but actually it was pretty interesting in terms of where it came from. The cosmic piano uh, by the other team that was working with us is um, detecting muons that are coming from space and actually landing on the cosmic piano. When the muons land on a certain part of the cosmic piano, it plays a certain note. Because we don't know when or how many or where those muons are going to land, it sounds very, very random. So that's what was accompanying us. We had the randomness of nature, along with this more melodic data series that was representing the frequency of the Higgs boson across a whole frequency spectrum. So that bit of music we had was live from outer space. That was live from outer space, yes. CERN's Cosmic Piano. This is Space Boffins. We're at Jodrell Bank, just under the enormous Lovell telescope. I think in the background, the band you can hear is air. I think that is air. Yeah, our producer, she, she knows these things. 
Big news coming up in September. The European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft will crash into comet 67P, bringing the mission to an end. Project scientist Matt Taylor has been speaking to a packed tent here at Blue Dot. A very entertaining talk, Matt, covering everything from uh, Rosetta, Star Wars, a bit of Battlestar Galactica in there, and, you know, quite a lot of science too. So what's going to be happening between now and the end of the mission? We're really near the end of what we're looking at as being the scientifically driven part of the mission. We'll soon move into the end of mission phase, which is driven purely by the mission operations guys in Darmstadt, so the flight dynamics people, because the key part of this... The key part of the end of the mission was to try and get as close as possible to the comet in a controlled manner, not just plunge to our death. We really wanted to get gradually closer and closer, and to do that, we have to hand over to the operations guys, to hand over to the flight dynamics people, because they're the ones that have to enable that. And so we'll be doing science, of course, but they're really going to be modifying gently the, 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 uh, the trajectory. What about the science in an uncontrolled manner when you actually land? <laughs> well, this is it. The, the, we, we've decided only now where we were going to land because we had to do an analysis again. We, were, we had a couple of target points that we were looking at. The one that we've gone for, this in the Matt region, I think that's a, uh, the correct pronunciation, it's on, the I think, the left-hand side of the head of the duck. It's a region that is of interest scientifically because it contains these pit regions and I, I talked about this in, the, in, the, in, in my talk we think they are key in well one, the, the activity that we're seeing but also on a lot of them we see in the sidewalls these goosebumps these very small scale like one to three metre size features that we think are the primordial building blocks of the comet so to actually get high resolution images of those would be fantastic. Now there are, there are other ones all over the comet that we've seen. These pits, they're actually quite there's quite a lot of them on the back of the duck, but that was incredibly challenging to get anywhere near that from this final descent phase. The head seemed to be the best option and uh, we've managed or flight dynamics have managed to find a trajectory that will allow us to get to this mat region on the side of the head of the duck that gives us that science aspect that you know the, to look get a glimpse within one of those pits. How difficult is it to, to navigate down towards this? Because you're orbiting, and you're, you're captured by the gravity of the comet, orbiting closer and closer and closer. Every time you've done this, every time you've done an approach close to the comet, you've run into problems with the navigation system. Well, I'll tell you how difficult it is in October. <laughs> no, no this, is, this is the thing. We're spending so long doing this. We're spending about six weeks, so by mid-August we'll transit fully into this mode that I was talking about, which is... If you're the sun, I'll have to try and describe this for, for listeners. Uh, we have the Terminator plane, which is the plane that separates the day and the night side of the comet. Normally, a lot of the time we spent orbiting in that plane. We'll shift our plane to be about 20 degrees offset. The closest approach will be on the day side, and the, 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 obviously well, the, the furthest away we get uh, will be on the night side. It will start at 13 kilometres furthest distance, 8 kilometres closest distance, and then what we'll gradually do is drop the pericenter and maybe the apocenter. So you're basically shrinking an ellipse, but trying to keep a three-day period of that ellipse, and then we'll get to a phase where we'll get very, very close and there'll be some other stuff going on. But it's challenging, but we're doing it in a controlled manner. So we'll do this, so we'll gradually say, right, let's drop down, 
this is our plan. Now, if something goes wrong, we may have to scrap that plan. Uh, but at the moment, there's no alternative. As we had with the fillet landing, we had a couple of paths to go. This one is, well, the end point is going to be on the Comet. And we have to really do it by the end of September as well, because the power drops down. We actually go into solar conjunction on the 1st of October. So the, the data rate is dropping through the floor. So we, we're against the clock again. This is more difficult, and I didn't stress this enough in my talk, actually. This is more difficult than the fillet landing. Wow. Is it actually going to crash or are you going to control it as low as you can? Because obviously the, the, the more controlled you have that, closest to the surface, the better it is. In yeah, terms we, of what we're going you to get try at. and get as much data as possible. So you do that by trying to be as slow as possible. It's probably going to be half the impact speed that we had for fillet. So we're looking at about 50 centimetres a second to maybe 60 centimetres a second. We'll no see. So, well, you, in the end, you don't know. And the thing is, we won't know. We won't know whether it's bounced because what will happen as soon as we lose signal, that's the end of Rosetta. Oh, will you lose signal then straight away? It's not. It won't carry on communicating once it's on the comet. The way we, we, we're putting it into a situation to be tidy, basically, we have to make sure that as soon as we lose contact, that's it. It doesn't try and transmit. The thing was designed to fly in space, not to roll around on the comet. So as soon as it breaks contact, as soon as we lose that signal, that's the end. We put it into a situation as we approach the comet to enable that to happen. So we know that the spacecraft is in a kind of end-of-mission state. Are you worried at all about contamination or, you know, the, this <clears throat> fact that, you know, this, this maybe ethical argument that you shouldn't litter comets? Well, I think it's an IAU edict or there's an IAU rule that, well... So it's, International, International Astronomical, Astronomical Union. I think this is correct. Well, for one thing, we've already put fillet on there. <laughs> uh, and that wasn't a particular... Well, that, that, that's been done, so we've technically contaminated it already. But I, I think there are regulations that state that we don't count comets because they're a short-term astronomical body they, they burn up and fall apart so that that thing will okay it could be a thousand years that it's still uh, orbiting around the sun but at some time it will just fall apart so i think we don't address objects like comets like that because they they can break up anytime we don't know the next uh, apparition of the comet because of its weird shape it may have lost enough volatiles such that this loosely bound object might just fall apart anyway we don't know but that's why. It's, it's, it's not counted for that kind of object. You know, the 30th of September is my birthday, so oh, really? I'm really pleased about this. There you go. We, we aim to please. Although, as I said in my talk, I wanted to do it on the Thursday because Friday's pizza night. <laughs> but we can go to Vapiano's, I guess, in Darmstadt if you're there. <laughs> Rosetta Project Scientist Matt Taylor on my birthday celebrations. <laughs> hey, he was a bit of a star, wasn't he? He was being mobbed by people for selfies, ourselves included, actually. Well, here's a flavour of some of the other things that have been going on at the Blue Dot Festival. My name is Catherine Joy, I'm from the University of Manchester, I'm part of the Earth and Solar System team and we are researchers in the isotope geochemistry group and we study pieces of the moon, Mars and asteroids in our labs and then we come out on events like this to tell people about the research we do and get people enthusiastic about planetary exploration. And we've got a microscope in front of us, what is beneath here? It looks a thin sliver of rock. This particular sample is a piece from the moon, so we slice it really thin, about 30 microns, which is about the thickness of a human hair, and then we shine light through it. And this particular sample actually came from Antarctica, 
So it's not directly from the moon. It was actually found here on Earth, and it's been delivered to Earth as a meteorite. So we have lots of samples that the Apollo astronauts brought us back, and the meteorites add to this collection. And is that how you can confirm that you know this is definitely... Because most of the meteorites that fall in Antarctica are usually from Mars, aren't they? So we have some from Mars, we have some from asteroids. So the moon's easy, because we can match it with the Apollo samples. Mars is a bit trickier. There was a big debate about this, and the way they kind of decided in the end was they matched the gas composition in the meteorites with the gas composition measured from spacecraft that had been to the surface of Mars and lo and behold the two matched and we could put two and two together so we have some Martian samples and lunar samples and lots of different asteroids as well. Well let me have a quick look under if you don't mind excuse me I'll just have a quick look at uh, a slice of the moon. Oh wow so it's very Hold on this is colourful this looks like a kaleidoscope it, I, I didn't expect that I did not because it's grey well, yes. So the rock itself is grey, but what we've done is we've put in an analyzer which changes the way light goes through the different minerals. And so all those beautiful colours, that stained glass window effect, tells us about the different minerals that are in that sample. So geologists spend a lot of time looking at these sorts of colours, and we can tell information from them about how that rock cooled in a volcano, how it crystallised, and that tells us about the types of processes that went into forming that volcano's past. So this is blue, orange, pink yellow, green the moon is not as grey and boring as you think it is (laughs) we can look at it in new and exciting ways all the time Izzy here, I'm joined in the Starfield with Dr Alex Ryan from the University of Manchester who's demonstrating how to exercise like an astronaut Alex, tell me why do astronauts need to keep fit when in space? Well the problem is on the International Space Station there's reduced gravity so You don't realise it, but your body works out every single day just to basically fight against gravity. So in space where there's no gravity, you get a lot of increased muscle loss. So astronauts who spend six months on the International Space Station can lose up to 25% of their muscle mass, and um, that also leads to other complications like you lose bone and your heart physically gets smaller. And how do they keep fit? Well, obviously you can't do normal exercises because nothing weighs anything. If you push up on a treadmill, you're going to push off into the rest of the ship. So for the aerobic exercises, for cardio, like there's um, a bike called Sevis and a... um, treadmill called Colbert where you're physically attached to it but to actually build muscle and maintain your muscle mass you need to do resistance exercises which is basically weightlifting but obviously you can't do that in space because nothing weighs anything. They developed a machine called Arred which uses um, vacuum pistons to actually create the force required to um, mimic exercise so you're basically fighting against a piston similar to an air pump. Throughout this whole weekend I've seen lots of water rockets flying off in all different directions can you talk me through the experiments that you're showing here? We're basically demonstrating how ARED, the resistive exercise machine, works. Whereas they use vacuum pistons, we have simple bike pumps. Now the easiest way to actually demonstrate how they work is to simply just attach a balloon or a bottle rocket to it. You put a little bit of water in the bottom and then when you pump through, you're pumping air into the top of the bottle. But eventually this builds up your pressure. The easiest pressure release is at the bottom of the bottle. Suddenly all that pressure comes rushing down, the water comes rushing out and the bottle flies into the air somewhat unpredictably. It's not every day that you go to a festival and you see someone whip out a potato from their bag. I'm joined with Helen, who is a physicist working with Science Girl, who actually has one on her right now. Helen, can you tell me why you're carrying a potato? I did an astrophysics master's, and what I was studying is the shape of asteroids. By studying how much light is scattered back from an asteroid as it spins, we can work out its original shape backwards. And what we've found is most of them are potato-shaped. And so by studying their shapes, what does that actually tell us about the asteroids? By studying the shape of many asteroids and about 
four to five hundred have been modelled so far, we're able to work out where and how the solar system formed. So by looking at where different shaped asteroids are now and where they've come from, we can work out how the planets formed and really exciting things like how the dinosaurs died. So what causes asteroids to be so irregularly shaped? This is mostly because most asteroids are too small to possess enough matter to have enough gravity to form a more regular shape, which is why you get ones that look like potatoes and other really cool ones that look like ham bones and ducks and things like that. But it's also because they have a really volatile history, so you get lots of asteroids that crash into each other and other planets as they're thrown out of their orbits because of other effects of gravity with other planets. How are you doing? I've just wandered into the campsite and I've gate-crashed Joe and Keith's breakfast. Have you enjoyed Blue Dot Festival? Absolutely. It's just been so thoroughly enjoyable to be around like-minded people and to be able to go from like band to lecture to band to lecture. It's been just an unreal experience. Personally, I'm a musician myself and I'm also very into physics and different kinds of sciences and whatnot. And I, the, I think the cohesion between science and music has always been quite obvious to me in a way, as in like it all works off wavelengths. I've never actually sat in a science lecture and had a cider, which is it's a great, it's a brilliant festival and all everyone seems to be really like-minded, so it's like everyone's really into science and music. Hi, I'm Jasper and I'm 11 years old. I've been going to festivals since I was like nine. And I really enjoy science. I've seen the um, VR with the particle accelerator, which is really, really cool, yeah. I really want to see um, the Minecraft robot and um, also some of the music as well. Hi, I'm Rebecca and I'm from Manchester. And I'm Jack and I'm also from Manchester. I have an interest in science, but not necessarily an academic one, so... It's always nice to have something that's quite accessible to go and watch. Do you think this would make you go to more science events now that you've, you've sort of had a gradual easing into it? I think so, yeah. I think it would make me think that it isn't just for the boffins or whatever. It's for, it's for everyone, really. We are public service broadcasting, and it has been a pleasure to play for you tonight. This is Space Boffins from the Blue Dot Festival at Jodrell Bank. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're recording Space Boffins at the Blue Dot Music Festival. You can find pictures on Facebook and Twitter, including my excellent picture of two clangers. How do we describe Blue Dot? It says just Blue Dot on the, uh, the rather snazzy, I think this costs £10, the, uh, the brochure here. But it's really, a, it's a music festival, it's a, it's a science festival. Somebody, I heard somebody say it was Woodstock for geeks. I thought Glastonbury for geeks was sounds definitely, better, yeah. sounds better. But it's almost more like a, a, a family festival. 
you don't feel that you've got a load of drunkards about to vomit over your, your shoes, or maybe maybe that's happening later. But because it's so science and space orientated, there are not that many music festivals where you can go and hear about black holes or suddenly go and hear someone talk about a, a new space mission. And you've got very, very senior space scientists here. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's good fun. I think that's the best thing. Are you saying we're getting a better class of people? <laughs> A better class of person. Absolutely. Um, Izzy, you know, our producer, a young person, um, <laughs> you were here on Friday. We weren't here on Friday. And the bands on Friday had public service broadcasting with an amazing space album and um, Underworld. What has the music quality been like if it is a music festival? It has been incredible. I know that you were quite sad to have missed yesterday's um, event, but... I've never seen a crowd react so well to some headlining acts. And because it is that bit smaller than Glastonbury or the the big festivals, you can get really up close and personal to these amazing artists. And they're so approachable and they almost interact just as much as the audience seems to be as well. Um, It's it's very bizarre, but I'm loving it. I would also say that what's been quite impressive is that the food is very good (laughs) (laughs) thinking with my stomach what i i've liked is that the the scientists we talked about matt taylor they are as big as stars here as the artists on on stage we've got the the big headliner tonight is going to be john michelle jar i went to see beth orton earlier who i think is fantastic to be honest i'm more interested in the science talks than the music other than public service broadcasting which who i would have loved to have seen yeah then no, no, the science has got it for me i think that the standard of the talks i've been to have been fantastic it's almost the perfect in terms of the, the music here the perfect venn diagram between science and spacey stuff and and music what I really enjoy is that there are various levels of science around. So you've got the kids' events going on who are really getting hands-on with everything. I've seen water bottles being rocketed up into the sky, explosions everywhere. Um, and then there are those step step up. There's like the panels which really open discussion. And then over on in the further field, by the nebula stage, there are the astro talks which really get to the nitty-gritty details but they're all attracting these huge crowds and and then in the background you've got someone playing the guitar on the main stage and you're sort of trying to piece it all together really well i was at another large gathering recently and that was the farnborough international air show and there was a specific reason for going not least because the british ESA astronaut Tim Peake was going to make his first appearance after a certain six-month trip. Ladies and gentlemen, this is our panel for this morning. Welcome to uh, Tim Peake's first press conference back here in the UK following his six-month Principia mission. Hi, first question for Tim Peake. It's Sue Nelson from Boffer Media, Space Boffman's podcast. Tim, quite a few astronauts take a while to recover, some longer than others. 
what physical condition are you in at the moment and did you experience any eye problems because they're something that medical people at NASA and ESA have picked up on. Um, Hi Sue, yes, uh, the first part of your question is is very interesting because I I feel in great physical condition and um, really after just the first couple of days, (laughs) still a bit of of work to do in the gym I think, but uh, after the first couple of days of being back on Earth, um, really once that uh, feeling of vertigo dies down, um, you feel great. And I've been very fortunate, no problems with the feet or the legs or back or anything. The last three weeks have been incredibly interesting because that's when we get so much science data as to how the body is readapting to living in gravity and also what would be effects of six months living in microgravity. So I've spent the last three weeks uh, with having muscle biopsies, MRI scans, ultrasounds, uh, plenty of blood taking, for example, and uh, special x-rays to look at not just bone density but the actual microarchitecture inside the bone which has changed. Um, and that will take probably six months to a year to fully recover, although I don't feel the effects of that, but that's obviously, uh, I can see from those scans, the effect that the microgravity's had. But that's, uh, overall, I've lost 2% of bone density, which is remarkable to spend six months in space and just come back with that loss. And, and that's really a testament to how far we've come in understanding how to live and work in space. And this is really paving the way for those, those Moon and Mars missions that we're talking about. We are, we are really in a, a stage now where we understand how the body reacts in microgravity and we're working towards how we can do those future long-duration missions. Tim Peake. Well, while I was at the Farnborough Air Show, there was an interesting announcement of a lunar venture between SSTL, who are the small satellite manufacturers in Guildford, with quite a big presence in space, and the Goonhilly Earth Station in Cornwall. With me is Matthew Cosby, who's the chief scientist at Goonhilly Earth Station. Quite an interesting development with SSTL. Yes, we have a partnership with SSTL and ESA. We announced that we were going to do a lunar pathfinder to the moon. The objective of this mission is to take small nanosats to the moon, drop them off in low lunar orbit. The relay station then goes into an elliptical orbit and then we offer communications from those nanosats to the Earth. And the PIs of those satellites can access their data from a simple internet interface at Goonhilly. So everything, all the science that's being done will be sent down to Cornwall, where where you're based? Yes, hopefully that will tie in with our vision of getting the visitor centre open and an inspiration centre so people can come and see us controlling the lunar mission and we're hoping to name it after Douglas Adams as well because it's 15th anniversary of his, his death this year. Guildford and Goonhilly were both mentioned in the book so we think that's a, a fitting <laughs> oh, that's tribute. lovely, that's really nice. Will there be a don't panic sign in oh, the control uh, Yes, all over the place I would hope. <laughs> yeah. And um, what sort of experiments and information are they likely to be sending? We are opening the call to anybody. Anyone can propose their own experiments, their own spacecraft, where they want to be in lunar orbit or try and land on the surface for exploration purposes. On the surface as well? Yeah, we're offering about 50 kilos of mass, so we think we could do a a very low-mass lander for about 20 kilos, but it's it's open to anybody. The idea for ESA is that we offer the infrastructure around the moon, so the likes of Lunar Resorts and maybe with ESA DG's vision of the Moon Village having some, almost like a mobile phone network around the Moon. We'll send one in 2019, then we're going to send one maybe a year later or two years later and just build up that infrastructure. 
and eventually we'll just offer a communications and hopefully in the future navigation services so a gps system around the moon as well oh my goodness so that means theoretically you could get better wi-fi on the moon in the future than you can in the countryside that's possible yes (laughs) this is space boffins from the blue dot festival at jodrell bank and we've been talking about this joining of music and space and Imagine it almost like a Venn diagram, music on one side, space on the other. And I would put in the middle the people we're going to hear from next, Jez and Andy Williams. You might know them from Sub Sub. They were a big Manchester band back in uh, 1993. Their, their hit was Ain't No Love, Ain't No Use. Huge, huge club hit. And then they became the Doves. They had hits too. Uh, now they are Black Rivers. Their connection to Jodrell Bank, well, they have two. They grew up around here, but they have also bounced a guitar riff off the moon. Well, let's hear from them. You know, we grew up not far from here, so we used to travel out here a lot as kids. Yeah, it was one of those day outs. If you live in the northwest, at one point in your school life, they're going to drag you out here for a day. And it's, it just had a lasting impression with me. Just I couldn't get my head around what this kind of collects waves from space in my day they did the ticket tape i'm sounding old now but they from this ticket tape you could go yep that is definitely there were you know a wave bouncing off certain uh, planets or that was a wave off of some kind of distant star or some kind of binary planet or something you know and it was it just had a lasting impression how did you come then to play this guitar riff off the moon how did that come about i think it was at the anniversary of the moon landings So they were, they were going to ask musicians, you know, to try this experiment, and luckily we were on the list. Uh, at first we thought, well, it would be amazing to bring the whole band and try it, but that wouldn't have really worked because it has to be short little signals. Because you've got um, this two-and-a-half-second delay. Yeah. So you send a signal up from Earth, bounce it off the moon, it comes back two-and-a-half seconds. So anything complicated is going to sound just a mess, isn't it? Yeah, the kind of reason why is because it's two-and-a-half seconds, you've got to keep it under two seconds so you can wait to hear the, the, the kickback of the delay. So, yeah, you keep it short and sweet in little short bursts and then you can hear it coming back all mangled and weird and uh, some of it is, you know, the, the cosmic radiation of the, from the Big Bang and some of it is just interference from the uh, trying to tune it into the actual wave. So, yeah, uh, I mean, that in itself is just, yeah, quite mind <laughs> That's me on That's the moon over the moon. Earth? Moon. If you had a radio telescope anywhere in the world, you could pick up those signals. Yeah, yeah I, you know, which is pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? I think they're spreading the way... That when, it, when they bounce it off the moon, it comes back the width of planet Earth. So all you need is, you know, something in our backyard like the Dodgeball Bank, and then it'll pick up that. It's big enough to scoop up that wave. Oh, it's the nice. ultimate delay, nice. isn't it? I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. it beats a little electronic box. Well, yeah, I mean, it's quite fitting because jazz, his guitar sound incorporates a lot of um, delays. You know, if you see him live or whatever, it, it's a lot of delay pedals. So for him, it's like, you know, going to Mecca, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the Mecca, yeah. yeah. It's the Mecca yeah. of delay pedals. Yeah. Can't get more analogue than using the moon. You know? What I was intrigued by when you just explaining how it all worked, the setup. Actually, it was quite a low-tech way of doing it. I mean, mean, you're using this amazing infrastructure, but actually the the way they did it was quite low-tech. I I don't remember using Skype, (laughs) because what we had to do, I'll just go through the technicalities, so I'm playing the guitar into this kind of box, if you like, 
that sends it to Skype. Skype sends it then to Cambridge, and then uh, the Cambridge dish sends it to the moon. And then obviously Jodrell Bank in Manchester receives the uh, the uh, delay signal from the moon. So, um, but they do that via Skype. Uh, as in send a signal from Manchester to Cambridge before it bounces back to Manchester. So I was surprised at Skype, and I really was. I didn't. I yeah, don't remember it being Skype. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I thought it was a lot more advanced than that. <laughs> quite disappointing is Skype. I thought it would be like. Yeah, some... I quite like it. It's quite punk rock, yeah. isn't it? You know, we don't need all that. I mean, we can do this with lo-fi. Yeah. yeah. Uh, playing that, how hard was it? Uh, it wasn't. It, was, it wasn't particularly hard. It was just exhilarating playing and hearing the moon mangle up the signal coming back it's, just, it's, it's quite a nice um, thought provoking kind of mom- moment or seconds that you know the, your signal has left planet earth and you're going to res- res- receive it uh, the delay signal coming back off the moon bouncing off the moon so it was it was very easy and exhilarating you know. did, did you find you were playing differently as it as it changed as the, yeah. as you got this yeah. signal back you yeah. thought oh I'll change yes. it and you're almost like tuning it you're tuning when you're hearing it come back off the moon, you're tuning it in, you're tweaking it so you can become a little bit more affinity with the moon. I know that sounds pretentious and crazy, but really, yeah, you start kind of naturally tailoring it and tweaking it so you can get the cleanest signal coming back. Yeah. Jez and Andy Williams of Black Rivers. They were previously the Doves. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientist. We have support from the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and a grant from the Royal Astronomical Society. Do follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find plenty of pictures from the festival here. And uh, also, if you want to listen to a couple of radio programmes that we've made for BBC Radio, then look up Caravans in Space, which is all about interstellar travel, and a documentary called Women with the Right Stuff, which is all about the history of women in space. And it's presented by one of the Mercury 13, the wonderfully named Wally Funk. And she is fantastic. It's a fantastic programme. Bit of a first for Space Boffins this time. We've had a producer, can you tell? Uh, Izzy Clark, you heard from her earlier. We're Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.